When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I and my country look forward to a very productive few days together. Semiconductors are engines of the modern world. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I will work every single day to make sure that Stacey Abrams is never your governor. You think that John Ossoff and Biden... One fair and square. That's the difference between the two of us. This is going to be a Davos unlike any we've seen, Tom. It's no different, Joe, than the Plumbers Convention in Las Vegas. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Joe Biden visits Asia for the first time as president. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. As we follow the trip to South Korea and Japan, all with an eye on China. The pivot to Asia is actually happening, and we'll talk about it with Anna Ashton of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Can Congress get anything done from now to November? The CHIP Act, maybe COVID funding? We'll discuss in our Friday Reporters Roundtable with Bloomberg's Emma Kinnery and Jack Fitzpatrick. And later, the elite descending on Davos this weekend. Among them, Bloomberg's own Tom Keene, who joins us later for a special conversation about a most unusual World Economic Forum this year. President Biden kicked off his trip to Asia today, South Korea, where he met with that country's new president, spoke at a Samsung computer chip plant, actually the company's biggest foundry, which will be replicated in Texas under a previously announced deal. So this was all put together with the reason President Biden spoke to the growing need for semiconductors. Here he is. This is an auspicious start to my visit because it's emblematic of the future cooperation and innovation that our nations can and must build together. Semiconductors power our economies and enable our modern lives, from our automobiles to our smartphones to medical diagnostic equipment. And reminding us, the president has, well, multiple audiences on this trip, as always. He talked about the jobs. Here he is in Asia. He talked about the jobs that Samsung is bringing to the U.S., will create 3,000 new high-tech jobs in Texas and add to add to 20,000 jobs Samsung already supports in the United States of America. 
And he spoke with support from the company itself. It was a big show. They had the stage set up, the big backdrop. Lee J. Young is the vice chairman of Samsung. Listen. Over a quarter century ago, Samsung became the first international company to make semiconductors in the United States. We highly value our friendship and look forward to continuing our special relationship. Okay, special relationship. The president's trip will continue through Tuesday. Uh, He's got a formal visit to Japan, meetings with the leaders of the Quad. This is important, actually, while he's in Tokyo. Big meeting of the Quad, right? U.S., Japan, Australia, India added to the conversation. So what's the point of all of this while war rages in Ukraine? We're joined to try to answer that question by Anna Ashton, Senior Fellow for Trade, Investment and Innovation at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Thank you for being with us, Anna. I want to talk to you about the elephant in the room here, a country the president is not visiting on this trip and a country that's going to be watching this trip very closely. Of course, that's China. Does Beijing see this as a threat? Well, I think certainly the statements out of Beijing uh, in the last week do indicate that that they view this as um, at least antagonistic, if not a threat. And uh, with good reason, you know, because uh, the Quad is basically an alliance with a mutual interest in countering uh, some of China's policies. So uh, to have Biden in the region visiting its neighbors and uh, talking about issues that are contrary to China's interests, um, yes. That's kind of the point of it, though, right? The reason this whole pivot to Asia was to to face the threat from China. But it's a very complicated relationship. China's not only threatening us, they're also partnering with us on an economic level. I realize a good deal of that has been undone. Uh, so, you know, what's the what's the unspoken conversation that's happening? What's the actual message we're trying to send? Well, you know, I think we're trying to send several messages. <laughs> I think we're trying to to sort of uh, recoup our losses in terms of um, perceptions of us globally as being interested in engaging with the world and leading the world. Mm-hmm. So this, like Biden's efforts in Europe, is uh, partly about reinvigorating our partnerships in the region and showing that we're still there. It's also about showing that we can be in two theaters at once. With Ukraine taking up so much of our attention, it's important to remind the Indo-Pacific region that we consider ourselves part of that region and we want to uh, to be partnering to, I guess, boost the, the kinds of practices and standards that we yeah. believe are the right practices and standards in the 21st century. To what extent is the apparent expansion of NATO informing China's view of all of this. You know, you're President Xi in Beijing watching what's happening in Europe here. It's like, whoa, U.S. rising. This is not the last administration. They're adding Finland and Sweden now. This guy's on his way to meet with the Quad, uh, kind of in our backyard here. Is that the concern that this is going to be sort of a growing presence that the United States will have in that part of the world? Well, you know, a a few years ago, I wouldn't have said that that would be top of mind for China. But China has certainly backed uh, Vladimir Putin's concerns about the spread of NATO. Hmm. And there has been lots of analysis in the United States about whether or not uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a model for success or failure for for China and Taiwan. Um, you know, I do think that part of the the point of being in the region and shoring up our security relationships is to deter any interest on China's part in 
and possibly moving on Taiwan, whether or not it's likely is a separate question. Yep. But um, but I don't think that it's likely that, that China is about to yeah. move on Taiwan, though. So I don't well, think that that's, that's an imminent thing. Sure. Uh, the other regional threat is North Korea. And they're talking about apparently a nuke test this weekend. Do you think that happens? And is this just a lonely man making noise here? Or is this, you know, a, a real threat to the United States, a military threat the U.S. has to be concerned about? I guess the reality is that we are in the middle of a of an enormous geopolitical power shift. Um, the the center of global economic activity is rapidly shifting to Asia. China is rising as an economic and military power and has different ideas in many respects about what the rules of the road should be in international relations. The United States is trying to reassert its interests and shore up relationships that can support those interests. And, you know, we have countries like North Korea and Russia that are testing the waters. Do you are you concerned about it, though, or I guess, you know, is it is it all bluster? Because so far, of course, that's all we've ever seen. Uh, and, and things have changed a bit since Donald Trump was dancing around the, the, the DMZ with Kim Jong Un. I mean, I'm not a North Korea expert, I have to I have to admit, but I uh, my inclination is to believe that it's it's primarily bluster. However, yeah. you know, when we have instability and, and a, a land war in Europe, um, we have to take these sorts of things a little bit more seriously. And Ashton, let's talk policy for a minute, remembering that President Trump pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a 12-nation partnership negotiated by uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, Joe Biden's expected to unveil, I guess, what they're calling the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework this weekend, which is also being called a watered-down version of uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Is there any point to this or is this, you know, kind of a chance to sign some papers and pose for a picture? Certainly, uh, as part of our pivot to Asia, we have been emphasizing that we want to have stronger security and political relationships with various countries in the region. Uh, but we have been a little bit slow to talk about the importance of economic relationships. And there are uh, numerous developing economies in the region that would really like to have stronger economic relationships with the United States. But what they're envisioning is greater market access, reduced tariffs, those sorts of things. And that's not really part of what we're expecting to hear unveiled when President Biden announces the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Spending time with Anna Ashton, Senior Fellow for Trade, Investment and Innovation at the Asia Society Policy Institute, as President Biden continues the travel uh, through Asia China watching, of course, Anna, as we've already discussed, but I'd like to ask you about Russia as well and China's relationship with Russia. There is word that China is going to buy Russian oil, for instance. It was a it was a screamer headline uh, on the terminal earlier today. That's a pretty bold move based on the conversations that Joe Biden himself has had with President Xi. Well, you know, China uh, imports an awful lot of energy from Russia. And, uh, and and Europeans do, too. I, I think uh, we have yet to roll out an embargo on energy that involves secondary sanctions against countries that are importing energy yeah. from Russia. So there are, no ne- there are not necessarily consequences that will follow immediately from China doing this. But it does underscore the point that China is not the only country that relies on Russia for a variety of things. So does India as part of the Quad. And mm-hmm. that is... Um, a challenge for Biden as he tries to um, make sure that we are aligned with our major partners across the world and making yeah. sure that the sanctions are effective. All very important elements here that, that you're pointing out, Anna. Does, do, you, do you, however, see 
uh, the lines kind of being drawn between, you know, this allied China, Russia and, and the Western world? Or is that oversimplifying it then? For now, I think it's oversimplifying it. I don't think that's what the United States really wants or what China really wants. It's yeah. certainly not in the world's best interest if we're going to try to address common challenges like climate change, uh, pandemics, food insecurity resulting in part from, from the invasion of Ukraine. Um, but, you know, it is a risk as as the power balance shifts. What's the statement, uh, so to speak, the mission statement uh, from the Quad meeting? How important is that going to be next week? I think that partly depends on whether or not Australia participates. But, you know, I, I think Yeah, they've that, got elections um, this weekend, right? Exactly, exactly. They have elections, and um, depending on how that turns out, we may or may not uh, have somebody there. Exactly. But is it going to be an aggressively written statement? Is there is, you know, you already pointed out that that this is an important group here. What's the message to China? You know, I I don't expect it to be uh, overtly and extremely aggressive vis-a-vis China, but I I do want to point out that Anthony Blinken was supposed to give his his speech on China policy last week, and yeah. that is coming soon. So, so I think we stay should watch for tuned. That. Anna Ashton, many thanks for your insights. The Asia Society Policy Institute will be following the president for you on Bloomberg across the weekend and in next week. Coming up, we turn to Capitol Hill in our Friday Reporters Roundup. This is Bloomberg. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for sharing part of your Friday with us on Bloomberg Radio with a special nod to our listeners on satellite radio. Thanks for being here. It's time for our Reporters Roundup with Bloomberg National Politics reporter Emma Kinnery and Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick, no stranger to this program. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So it's it's not many weeks we have something to show for lawmakers being in town in Washington. But the Senate at last cleared the Ukraine funding bill. The House moved legislation on baby formula and domestic terrorism. Jack, I'm going to start with you. A lot of people are asking, is, is that it? And I know we've asked this before. Can Congress do anything else between now and November, knowing that they've still not come together on something you're writing about, which is COVID funding, not to mention the China competes bill? What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think that's it for the accomplishments of Congress between now and the midterms. They've got really high priority issues. The CHIPS bill, the China competitiveness bill, is a major priority. Priority. It's a huge conference committee between the House and Senate with more than 100 members, and they're still seemingly sort of in the spitballing phase of how much do we want to get into tax policy. So it's not right at the finish line, but mm-hmm. it clearly is a priority. Uh, there is interest 
in the issue of the FDA. Do they make changes at the FDA to follow up on this uh, baby formula shortage? Right. That's a new issue, too. As opposed to uh, just giving them more money. Yes. Well, they, that conversation is happening, too. But yep. there's a lot of interest in actual accountability. Uh, and, of course, they have to fund the government. And anytime they do that, that is a, a vehicle <laughs> so they can attach things to it. So they've got okay. more legislating to do, for sure. Is COVID funding lost? That one is so stalled. It is really something. It stalled over the Title 42 immigration issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I think maybe out of desperation, there's a little bit of talk uh, among Democrats. Gary Peters has brought this up, that if they can't figure out a Title 42 deal on that pandemic uh, policy that let them expel people from the border faster, mm-hmm. maybe they could do a border security spending measure. That would probably not win over Republicans because some of the resources they need to spend on are because of the end of Title 42 anyway. Mm. So Republicans really are just saying we should bring this back for now or come up with something. And that has just latched itself onto the COVID bill. And wow. it's, it's very, very stalled right now. Emma, what's the national appetite for this, not just here in Washington, but nationally, when the White House is, is ringing the alarm to say we're running out of tests, we're going to be running out of therapeutics, and we are now. We're beyond many of the deadlines that Jen Psaki laid out when she was still uh, press secretary. The president said we needed $22 billion. They cut it in half. That still can't move. Does yeah. this ever see the light of day, or are we going to find ourselves with a surge in the in the fall and winter in the White House being blamed for there not being enough therapeutics? I mean, if you look at it, there's arguments that it's a surge right now. <laughs> um, well, that's a with, great point. Yeah, a third of Americans right now, the um, CDC said yesterday, mm-hmm. live in an area where they should be wearing masks based on um, the COVID risk. I think that... Like Jack had said, we'll see if it gets through Congress. Mm-hmm. We'll see if it gets passed. But I think that people, there is a lot of a great need for it. Does that seem like a setup, though? This is like, you know, Lucy with the football. You you can see how this is going to play out. But that's the other thing is that, like, you know, they have to show between now and November that they're doing stuff well, <laughs> and that they're right. like trying to accomplish things, even if it doesn't actually happen. How it's, much of that is executive order, though, versus legislation? Well, they are running out of money, though, and so they're going to need action from Congress uh, on COVID, at least. They, these are resources. Right. Uh, especially for the the international stuff. There is bipartisan agreement that there should be some uh, international vaccine aid, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, And again, you know, that's why I mentioned they'll need to fund the government. So this is way too slow for the White House's taste, but they could have an annual funding conversation if this supplemental immediate bill just never happens. They've got to do something. Uh, The issue is they have been very, very slow. Yeah, they sure have. And we just remember uh, Omicron and and the, the amount of blame that the White House carried for not having enough rapid tests available. Emma, you remember yeah. all this. It's like you can just see it happening again. Yeah. And Ron Klain just um, you know, said yesterday they're already sending out more tests to people. You can request them. Yeah. But they're really trying to get ahead of the curve. On the China competes bill, it's not lost on me that Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, has really been the face of this story, helping to push this along, at least uh, publicly, is representing the administration at the Davos uh, conference, which will strangely have no snow this year. Um, Where does that stand? We've been talking about it for a year, Jack, and my God, you put 100 people in a room. How does anyone decide anything? Yeah, well, that's the the main challenge. You know, every time I ask lawmakers about this bill, it clearly is a priority. That's probably the one main thing that they are working on that there seems to be some confidence they really could get something done on that's not sort of annual government funding or annual defense policy. Um, But this was one of those measures where the House did its thing, the Senate did its thing. Now they've got to meld 
them together. And it, like I mentioned before, if you're still having the conversation about, well, do we want to get into tax policy? Yeah. If the answer to that is yes, there's a lot of work left to do. It's a very wide-ranging bill, and they want to give everybody the chance to sort of do their legislating on it. Uh, but I, I mean, nobody's talking about that bill falling apart, at least. It's okay. just moving quite slowly. But it was something that we needed a year ago, or at least we were yeah. told, uh, Emma, is this does this resonate nationally? Do people vote? I mean, my goodness, they can't even name the bill for crying out loud. How do how do lawmakers get that support from constituents on something so esoteric? Yeah, I think that that's that's a big that's a big question here, yeah, and especially they can't, on, I guess is the answer. Well, yeah, and I I think you know if you look at um, people can't even name if you look at polls people can't name what's in the infrastructure bill or what you know the Biden administration has already passed mm-hmm. or what Congress has gotten through. So especially stuff like this that has to do with China and trade, it won't move the mark. Emma and Jack will stay with us as we turn to the campaign trail coming up ahead of next Tuesday's primaries, voting in three states including. Georgia, big one for Donald Trump. And by the way, they still haven't called the race in Pennsylvania, right? The Republican primary for Senate, Dr. Oz, David McCormick, still within a thousand points or something days later. I wonder if that's done by the next set of primaries. We'll have more with Jack and Emma straight ahead on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Happy Friday. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. And the primaries keep coming. Busy month voting next Tuesday. In Alabama, Arkansas, and Georgia, we'll get you ready next with Bloomberg's Emma Kennery and Jack Fitzpatrick. They've still not decided the big primary from this week, the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania, but we're already gearing up for another important Tuesday here as the focus shifts to Georgia. We want to dig into some of these races with our panel. Bloomberg National Politics reporter Emma Kennery and Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick spending time with us today. The Friday edition of Sound On. It's great to have both of you here. Emma, a lot of us have been watching the Trump effect on the primaries. And I think we can agree the biggest test of Trump's influence could be in Georgia, simply because of the history there, the 2020 election. Uh, It's not looking good for Trump in the gubernatorial primary. Is there any chance, based on your reporting, that David Perdue beats incumbent Governor Brian Kemp? Something would really have to happen. Yeah. Um, like if you're looking at the polls, the Fox News just had a poll out yesterday that showed Brian Kemp, the incumbent, up 32 points over Purdue. Wow. So Purdue's doing pretty poorly in this election. And like you had said, Trump has done decently well so far with his endorsements. Um, but until this Georgia race, a lot of the people he has endorsed either have you know, not had a strong candidate against them, you know, or mm-hmm. really haven't had that competitive of a race. But now you're looking at Georgia governor where David Perdue versus Brian Kemp. Perdue is in this race, you know, because of Trump's support. And then you're looking at Secretary of State where you have Raffensperger and Jody Heiss. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that one. In terms of the, the governor's race, though, to see a spread like that is yeah. it's pretty unusual considering the name recognition that they both enjoy. Does that say more about Brian Kemp's job as governor or more about Donald Trump's lack of influence in Georgia? I think it's it, you could argue both. Yeah. Um, I think that clearly the voters, Republican voters, have liked what Kemp has done, mm-hmm. and his job record supersedes Trump's opinion. I guess, Jack, when it comes down to it, 
is Trump winning no matter who wins because we're all talking about him anyway? Uh, we are talking about him, but you know when you look at it, him getting involved in a Secretary of State's race, yeah. when you hear what he had to say about the Pennsylvania race, where he, you know, Mehmet Oz had a, a 0.1 percent declare victory, <laughs> declare victory now. That that's a concern for him uh, if he were to run for president again in 2024. Clearly, by getting involved in the Secretary of State's race and trying to go after Brad Raffensperger, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a priority for Trump to have some level of loyalty in. In the electoral process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are concerns besides publicity. I would add, by the way, with David Perdue, if you're going to kind of delegate, you're my, you're, you're Trump's guy in this race, Perdue had a bit of a scandal. He kind of got up with the, the Stock Act uh, trading ra- mm-hmm. trading issues in 2020, uh, which led to him, helped lead to him leaving the Senate. So, yeah. I, I mean, it, this may be a case in which Trump just didn't really pick the right horse to sort no. of be his proxy sure. in in Georgia. Emma, I learned from you that Mike Pence is going to be campaigning for Brian Kemp. Is this now a proxy of Trump versus Pence? I mean, definitely. Um, you look at it and you think about, you know, 2024 and Pence's ambitions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pence, until this race, really hasn't been that vocally against Trump or gone out, you know, against him. And this is a pretty significant It's pretty show. bold. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about the uh, the Secretary of State race here, Emma, because this was, Jack brought it up, this is maybe the most closely watched, maybe the most important contest to sort of play out the the impact that we're talking about here. And to see a congressman, Jody Heiss, kind of step down to run for this seat, but is that unprecedented? Uh, Well, you know, it's the big question, it'll be a test of can a candidate who is a traditional Republican, hits all the boxes, you know, Brad Raffensperger, be slammed and lose his seat based off of, you know, Donald Trump's opinion of him mm-hmm. and, you know, him not doing enough for the election. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it's very interesting to see, again, Raffensperger, who, aside from this, um, has been well liked in Georgia, be facing this from Jody Heiss, who's a U.S. representative. You ever heard of a congressman? It's not typically a, a step up to What's go the from point? the U.S. Is this House just currying favor? Trump nation? Uh, that would seem to be part of it. Uh, it is a statewide office. Uh-huh. If you have ambitions in the future, you know, going from the House to a statewide office, who, who knows? But, you know, it's it's definitely unusual to see somebody go from the House to something like Secretary of State. He's not running for governor or, or, or even, you know, the second in charge lieutenant governor position. Yeah. It's it's much more low profile than uh, your usual statewide campaign. But I'll, I'll also add, just after, you know, 2020 and all of of the you know all of the attention that was paid to the Secretary of State race, right. mm-hmm. it's uh, you know it, it, people are paying more attention and you'll get more ink than if they ran for re-election. Is that your point? That's, <laughs> people care. That's kind of incredible to think about. Before we wrap this conversation, and just looking backward for a second, Pennsylvania, Emma, do you have a sense of how long this is going to take? Um, I just checked right before I got on here, yeah. and there are about a thousand votes between them, and they're still counting. Wow. Yeah. Um, Oz is at thirty-one point two percent, McCormick thirty-one point three percent, or thirty-one point one percent. Mm-hmm. So Oz is up 0.1%. And then after that, once they do finally finish counting the votes, it'll go into an automatic recount. So then we're going to have to do this all Unless over again. Unless it's some miracle, right? That's, that's within uh, a half a percent. Is that right? Within half a percent. Triggers the, yeah. the recount. So we're going to recount, Jack, and you're going to be talking about this weeks from now. Uh, it can take a while. As, as Emma was saying, they have to finish the vote count and then they recount. It would take a really significant surge to go from a 0.1% lead <laughs> to a 0.5% lead. So yeah. that seems to be where they're going. You know, when you see a roughly 1,000 vote difference between two candidates, 
it, it would also have to be fairly significant to reverse that. It's not, you know, 0.1% in a, a little tiny race where the, it's yeah. a matter of a, a few dozen votes. Uh, but it can definitely take time and it maybe prove a little frustrating to Trump, who, you know, kind of jumped the gun in saying, let's let's call it well, early. Yeah, and while Trump has said that he is has expressed frustration mm-hmm. um, with Oz not just blowing out the race, mm-hmm. which again goes back to his endorsements and, you know, going into the Georgia primaries, what will that look like? We've got a lot to learn. This is going to be interesting next week. Emma Kennery, Jack Fitzpatrick, many thanks for the insights. You guys have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. There's one I'll remind you about in Arkansas that should get a lot of attention next week. The Republican gubernatorial to replace Asa Hutchinson, uh, who might run for president, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Remember President Trump's press secretary, Mike Huckabee's daughter? Uh, in the primary, running against Francis Doc, they call him Doc Washburn, a, f- a former radio talk show host. Does that mean I could run for governor? There's a more crowded field on the Democratic side. It's a five-way race. We'll let you know what happens. But Georgia, as we just discussed with Emma and Jack, will be the one that drives the headlines. We'll see if we have any late calls. Of course, you can count on Bloomberg News right here on the radio or on your terminal for a full readout on what happens. So it's on to Davos next. They're fueling up the Gulf Streams all around the world. I know it's sunny and here in Washington, at least in the 90s today. But yeah, we're doing the World Economic Forum. Leave the skis at home. And we're joined next by a special guest on his way after this to Davos. Bloomberg's own Tom Keen makes his debut on Sound On. Stay here. This is Bloomberg. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch stratacoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Now we round the bend on the fastest hour in politics. Thank you for joining us. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington with something special now on the Friday edition of Sound On. If you haven't heard, it's a big weekend for finance and politics. Yes, it's time to go back to Davos. only one man who can bring this home for us. The Dean of Davos himself, Bloomberg's own Tom Keen, of course, the co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance, up very early in the morning, and he's with us now in his debut appearance on Sound On. Tom, thanks for staying up with us. Joe, wonderful to be with you. It's uh, that time of year, except it's not January. Well, yeah, so it's time to gas up 
the surveillance Gulfstream, as you say, which may actually cost less than flying coach this year. Uh, but this is going to be a Davos unlike any we've seen, Tom, for starters, no snow, strangely, no skiing, yeah. no Russian oligarchs, and a backdrop this year that is bleak economically and politically. Tom, why is this even happening? A couple ideas. I actually looked up at the Gulfstream uh, costs here, jet fuel through the roof, and it's $21,000 yeah. just to get it up. I'm not taking the Gulfstream. Okay. Folks, we say good morning to uh, Swiss Air. They get me over to a Switzerland that will be shell-shocked. This is, of course, the great independent state. The war is front and center, Joe. And what I would say is so, so important is the World Economic Forum this time around is more on the page with the zeitgeist than I've seen them in 20 years. How, they how understand so? the war. The war is front and center. They're doing all the other themes, the risks, global warming, all the rest of it. But Klaus Schwab, Dr. Schwab, has said the war matters. You know, I want to get to the real stuff with you. I cover politics. We have, you know, say, a G7, right? And you've got the big family photo. You've got a lot of posturing, a lot of mission statements. But it's the bilats. It's the bilateral conversations yeah. that you don't get to be in the room for. This, the, the actual, in your case, the deal making. Is that part still intact? There's two parts to the deal making of the elite in Davos. One of them, which I think has been way underreported, is it's no different, Joe, than the plumbers convention in Las Vegas, where, yeah, there's a lot of partying, but people are there to do a lot, a lot of business. Yeah. The corporate officers that go, including our, our leadership at Bloomberg, work nonstop seeing people that they see once a year. It is exactly like the plumbers convention in Las Vegas. How much of but, it is spontaneous? Uh, it's very planned because people are on very short schedules. One of the great things about Davos in the modern calendar is the casual European four-day, five-day conference for many people is squeezed into a 48 hours in and out. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the backstory. The front story, to your point, is there is a zeitgeist. Now, traditionally on a Monday start, I would say... By Wednesday morning, it's completely changed into what really matters to people. Okay. And that happens year after year after year. But this May meeting is so different and so truncated that I'm not really sure how that's going to play out. Secretary Gina Raimondo, our Commerce Secretary, will be representing the administration. I know you're going to be talking with her next week, Tom. What what kind of an aura does the United States have, particularly oh, the administration loaded. walking into this meeting? Loaded question. That's like the Boston Red Sox in a year where they're actually competent versus what's going well, on. Well, we don't have to worry about now, that this year. It is so, so changed and changeable over the years. Of course, everyone remembers the excitement of Donald Trump coming and what was he going to say yeah. and all that. And, and without being political, it was a clumsy moment when President Xi spoke in Davos in 2017. It was shocking the quiet that descended on the valley, hmm. like a four or five mile valley, you could feel the silence as he spoke and the elites hoped that things would work out. Uh, take a memo, uh, Joe, it didn't work out. Yeah, I heard that. For the U.S., it's so ever-changing. I will never forget years ago with the Bush administration, everyone was there but Laura and George, and I'm there with Rob Portman, retiring now as a senator from Ohio. Yeah. And I don't know what undersecretary he was or whatever, but I'm literally sitting at the counter with Rob Portman over eggs and potatoes trying to stuff in some food late at night. I mean, you know, it, it, it's those kind of moments. And then that changes to now 
where the U.S. doesn't really want to project here. Yeah. So they send along uh, Ms. Raimondo of Rhode Island to be the face of the administration. This, of course, is the administration carries out an important trip to Asia. Uh, the connection is China. It's always about the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is China. Their growth, their percentage of global growth. Uh, Joe, I would suggest a great theme there will be what is China like mm-hmm. after lockdown. Hmm. And we could, you know, we do that every day on surveillance. We debate with people about when will the lockdown end, et cetera, et cetera. But I think a great theme will be what will China be like and the Pacific Rim and Asia be like after lockdown? All this said, we're talking a lot about the political undercurrents here, Tom. How about the economic undercurrents and, and the markets themselves? The last time we saw everything go down, you're showing yeah. up in Davos with people licking their wounds, Tom. That's happened before in any double of flavors. It happens at Jackson Hole. Are we there? Yeah, I guess we're there this time. But, Joe, I've been talking about this this week across Bloomberg surveillance. Joe, you can hear it and see it yeah. uh, five days a week on, on Bloomberg. I, I, yeah, I'm a fan. Well, I didn't know if you were aware we were on that early. You're only sliding in at 10 a.m. There are a couple, couple mornings I've been there for that, yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, but Joe, the, the, the big thing here not spoken is the decline in the bond market. Mm-hmm. The financial media, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, is equity-driven. There's all sorts of reasons for that we don't need to go into. I think into. your show's different on but that it, front, though. We're trying. That, yeah. was the, that was the invention. But it's stock market, stock market, stock market, mm-hmm. stock market. And the unspoken are the losses taken in the fixed income market worldwide, certainly within the United States, as measured by the Bloomberg set of Bloomberg total return indices. And I'm sorry, the bond market debacle is the great unspoken in Davos. Do you have a gut check? Are you allowed to tell me that on where the heck this market is? You talk to the smartest people in the business oh, every no, day. No, no, no. Uh, they sat me down. Uh, it was like it was like it wasn't the first born identity movie. It was sort of like number three movie. Okay. Where they took the chip out of my hip and they said they said, Listen, you can't give an opinion. Uh-huh. And as John Farrell will tell you, I give my opinion like five times an hour. Well, that's why we love you though. And I just you know, my God, somebody's gonna start calling the bottom here. I've Mr. Gollum this morning on yeah. your program. Sounded pretty bullish to me. At some point this is gonna end and it's gonna feel right. Maybe a little better. John Golub, who's been a bull at Credit Suisse and reaffirmed that this morning, uh, made very clear there are ways to work out of this where the Fed blinks, the Fed adjusts. Let me go to the bond space. Michael Collins at P. Jim, and then over to the wonderful Tony Roth at Wilmington Trust, mm-hmm. both talking about the asymmetries of the price decline in bonds. They could get worse. Bonds could go down in price, higher in yield. But both of them in their own way were saying the potential payoff from being optimistic here is far greater than the potential losses. Tony Roth suggesting growth, Mm -hmm. big tech, Microsoft-y-like. And Mr. Collins at PGM suggesting they're really studying, grab the coupon at whatever credit in bonds. It may go down. You may lose money. But the upside, to use his language, is double-digit bond potential. Wow. Now, that's not me talking. It's yeah. them talking. But, Joe, you will twist this around. I'll do my best, uh, actually. Uh, Tom Keene, you're walking us into the weekend here on Bloomberg Sound On. Just have to know, is there an official adult beverage for Davos? 
Uh, that's a loaded question. It's sort of a movable force. It's, it's, it's basically, I go, well, what, what are you pouring? Or, you know, okay. I'll have what you're having. Fine, that works. where it goes. That works. It will not be a Moscow mule. Guarantee <laughs> you, this year, no Moscow mules that's in brilliant. Davos. Uh, will you watch the Red Sox from overseas? This is a problematic issue. Uh, John Farrow has me steeled to watch AC Milan, <laughs> oh. which I wouldn't know if they hit me over the head. Right. You'd be stunned how hard it is to watch American sports in Europe. Isn't that it something? It is a real chore. Especially yes. when your team's losing. Tom Keen, get home safe. Thank you so much for your debut appearance on Bloomberg Sound On. Would you do this again? Yeah, I'll talk to my people. Okay. They'll talk to your people. Great. We'll figure it out. The great Tom Keen, uh, everybody, finally on the big broadcast, almost a year it took to get Tom Keen. Of course, the co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance, as you heard Tom mention, it's uh, weekday mornings. God, they do start early. Uh, 6 a.m. Wall Street time. If you get up on a Tuesday, you might even see me talking to Tom. He's a kidder. Uh, travel safe, sir. We're actually we've got a massive contingency going to Davos and you can expect special coverage on surveillance right here on Bloomberg Radio. As we move into next week, we're going to have special coverage as well. It's going to be a really important week next week. President Biden's trip, of course, to Asia will be following the president as he makes his way from South Korea to Japan. And we've got this massive primary day. Well, I shouldn't say massive compared to last week. There were five states, of course, but massive in significance because of one state. If you heard our conversation with Emma and Jack, Georgia votes the Trump brand on the line. And we'll have a lot of stuff to talk about coming into going out of uh, that primary. The AP, by the way, Associated Press calling during this broadcast while I was just talking to Tom that the Oz McCormick race, the Pennsylvania Republican primary, likely going to a recount. But of course, if you listen to this broadcast, you knew that already. Have a great weekend. And thanks to everybody for jumping in. Tom Keene. Emma Kinry, Jack Fitzpatrick, and Anna Ashton on the fastest hour in politics. We'll update the markets next after another roller coaster, and I'll meet you back here on Monday. On Sound On, I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Join global business leaders and investors at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, Returning to Singapore on July 31st. Take part in solutions-driven discussions on how to drive business value and unlock opportunity while remaining nimble in times of change and greater ESG accountability. Learn more at BloombergLive.com slash SustainableBizSingapore. That's BloombergLive.com slash SustainableBizSingapore.